Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us in our online service today. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you've joined us, and I hope that uh, this morning has already been a blessing, and I hope that as we dig into God's Word, it is, it is uh, challenging, convicting, and helpful for you. We're continuing our series in Ephesians, and as you remember, the first half of Ephesians, as Paul writes it, is the things we ought to know about the gospel how the gospel has united us to Jesus, how we were dead in sin and now we're alive in Christ. And then it moves at a very stark moment with a therefore statement in chapter 4 that leads us to how we ought to live, how we ought to live the gospel. And so we're kind of halfway through the how we ought to live the gospel part, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 today. And I'd encourage you as, as we go through this, uh, the sermon this morning, have your Bible out, take notes, be thoughtful about what we go through, and understand that this passage of verses 1 to 14 actually deals with one particular issue, an issue of sexual sin. And I know that's not popular. I know that that's not easy for a lot of us to hear. Many of us probably grew up in different situations in different homes that had different views on how to discuss sex and sexuality. But Paul is very clear. The Bible is very clear about sexual sin. And it's something that we need to talk about in the church because it plagues the world. One of the things that is interesting about Ephesians is that the city of Ephesus was the preeminent city in, in ancient Turkey or ancient minor Asia, Asia Minor. And this, what we would call now Turkey, Ephesus was a hub of, of all things um, Greco-Roman. It was the pinnacle of kind of Roman experience in, in the Middle East. And as we are to see Ephesians, the people that were there were highly religious, but highly religious in a Greco-Roman religious pagan system. And in many of the temples to the false gods, uh, sexual deviance was actually part of the practice of worship. And so Paul is speaking about this, trying to explain to Ephesian Christians, you're, you don't have to live like that anymore. You actually shouldn't live like that anymore because it's, it's wrong. It's not helpful. So what Paul is doing, he's trying to expose the difficulties of living in darkness, and he's trying to help Christians avoid the pitfalls of living in that. So that's what the big idea is today, to imitate God and walk as light, and you're going to see that phraseology in the passage. We must avoid and expose darkness. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, so therefore we always look back. At, this is Paul talking about put off the old stuff, put on the new stuff of the gospel. That was what chapter 4 was all about. Be imitators of God. Do the things that God does. Be holy like God is holy. But don't do it out of duty and obligation. Do it because you understand you are a beloved child. You are loved by him. You are part of God's family. You're not, he's not forcing you to act in a certain way because you're some subject, but because you are his child. He knows what's best for you. He knows what's good for your flourishing. And he says, so, and walk in love. Walk in love in the way that Jesus loved us in a self-sacrificing way. He gave himself up for us. That's the way that we're supposed to love God. That's supposed to be the way that we're supposed to live. And this, this word walk, walk in is, is really trying to help us understand this is how you ought to live. So remember, the first half of Ephesians, what you ought to know about the gospel. The second half of Ephesians, what you ought to live as the gospel, what you ought to do. And Jesus loved us, and he gave himself as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. On our behalf, that's what Jesus did. So verse 3 really gets into the throes of what Paul's going to command here now. He says, but sexual immorality impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. 
it's, pro it's unproper for the saints or as is proper among the saints. Now, the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality here is an all-encompassing word about sexual sin. It's the word porneia, and it's obvious where we get our word pornography from. So this porneia word, is it, it covers everything. It's not just watching pornography. It's not just sexual deviance. It's not fornication. It's not sex outside of marriage. It's not homosexuality. It's all of those things that Paul is encompassing. He says any sexual sin outside of God's design, any sexual activity outside of God's design for human flourishing is wrong. It's sexually immoral. It is morally corrupt. And then he says impurity or covetousness. Well, impurity is really this idea of anti-holiness. It's, it's against God's character and covetousness. Now, Paul could just mean like, don't be greedy, but because of the context of what he's saying, Paul is actually uses a word that signifies sexual, sexual vices. So covetousness here is like you, you're going after sexual indulgence. You're going after sexual, uh, sexual experiences that you, you ought not to be. And what Paul says is these things should not be named among you. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be part of a Christian. You should never be identified as a believer with somebody who is a Christian and does these things because they're, they, they, they're not compatible. It doesn't work together. They, they are different from the life of a Christian. They're against the identity of the Christian. And so Paul is building this argument that porneia, anti-holiness, uh, sexual indulgence is, is against God's good design for Christians. And then he continues, he says, let there be no, no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Let us be thankful for God's good design. Now, it could be that Paul is referencing don't, don't swear, don't cuss, uh, don't use foolish language, but based on the context of Ephesians 5 and the words that Paul chooses to use, he's, he's using these things again as an issue of, around sexuality. He's saying, don't speak filthiness. Don't, don't talk about things that are private in public. Don't make them uh, big outbursts of your vocabulary. Don't, don't speak foolishly about sex. Don't, don't demean it. Don't make light of it. And don't joke about it. Don't make jokes of things that are pure. Don't make jokes of things and try and get a laugh out of things sexually that are deviant. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. And he says the reason is because it's out of place. Just like it's not to be named among you Christians, it's out of place. It's not supposed to be part of who we are. And see, in our world of over-sexualized Western culture, this is, this is completely the opposite of what our world expects and actually kind of celebrates. The, the, the issues of gender identity, the issues uh, that surround this kind of cultural moment that we find ourselves in when it comes to sex and when it comes to sexual sin it's, it's not even something that's just celebrated. It's something that's glorified. And it shouldn't be because it's against God's good design for our own flourishing. See, when the devil wants to tempt someone with sexual sin or when our flesh starts to bubble up and we have these desires for sexual sin, the, what the devil wants to whisper to you is, this is good. It's going to be pleasurable. It will be delightful. And that's actually true when sex is used inside its, good, inside its proper context. But let me be very, very clear. The devil, when he's trying to tempt you to sin sexually, is not trying just like to try and derail you. He's trying to kill you. He wants to ruin your life. And the amount of marriages that have fallen apart because of sexual sin outside the confines of what God has designed, it, it's significant. It harms people. It harms relationships. 
Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite authors, he's, he's an excellently wise pastor, he says this, and I want you to listen very carefully. The covenant is necessary for sex, and sex is also necessary for the covenant. So the covenant meaning marriage. The covenant will grow stale unless we continually revisit and reenact it. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage, the physical reenactment of the inseparable, inseparable oneness of all the other areas that make up our marriage, whether it's economical, uh, legal, personal, psychological, uh, friendship. Those things are created by our marriage covenant, but sex renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant. See, God's design for sex is between one biologically born male and one biologically born female who are committed to one another in the covenant of marriage for their lifetime. That's the boundary. We don't go beyond that. That's what God has designed. And he says, don't let there be any foolishness or crude joking because that stuff is out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let us thank God for the good things that he has given us. Ephesians 5 5 says, For you may be sure of this. So there's a reason that everyone who is engaged in porneia, who is engaged in that anti holiness, who is engaged in that covetous, self indulgent sexual gratification, that is, or as Paul says, idolatry, meaning that you're God and you can make up your own views, he says, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, he's not saying that a person who is a Christian who struggles with this sin issue and is repentant, loses their salvation. We can't lose salvation. It's not ours to begin with. We're given it. We can't, we're, we're, not, we're not able for, for God to take it back away from us. He, he lavishly gives it to us freely. So what Paul must be saying here is not an issue of you're going to be disqualified from salvation. It, it, it kind of can mean that, but more so it's an indication that you haven't actually been given salvation. If you live completely sexually immoral, impure, and covetous, self-indulgent lifestyles as a Christian and saying that this is right and good and it's for my own flourishing and it's outside of God's design, it's actually the indication that you don't have inheritance, not that you're disqualified from it. So we want to make sure that we understand that as being really clear. And then verse 6, it says, So let no one deceive you with empty words. This empty words we're going to come back to because it's really important. But this deceive is don't buy the lie. Don't be deceived. Don't be taken captive. And he says, because of these things, these sexual sin vices, the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience, meaning the people who continually perpetrate that this is good and it's right when it's in fact not. Then in verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. So he's speaking to Christians. So because of this, because God's wrath is against these people who continue to propagate that sexual sin should be glorified and elevated, don't become partners with them. It's don't buy it, don't sell it. Don't, don't propagate it. Don't misrepresent God's word. Don't believe the lie that this is for your good and for your flourishing. It's not. Don't buy the devil's snare. Don't buy the devil's scheme of thinking that it's not harmful. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to destroy your life. It, it can and it does. Don't buy it. Don't sell it. Don't become partners with them, those sons of disobedience. Don't do it. Don't become partners with them. And this is the reason why. Paul says in verse 8, Because at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
See, what's interesting here is that Paul makes a very particular statement. He says, we're supposed to walk as children of light. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to be seen differently. So remember at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. Live holy lives. Live like the way that he has designed for you to live. Live like Jesus. Walk in love in the same way that Jesus walked in love. Be a fragrant offering to God. Be self-sacrificing. Give yourself over to God's good design for flourishing. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's kind of building on that same argument. But he uses some really interesting words here. He says that you were darkness. Notice it doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness, but now you are light. It's, it's a qualification of identity. So it's, it's, and it's not a translation issue. Don't miss this. It's not that some translation should say for at one time you were in darkness. That, that would be an improper representation of what the word says. Verse 8 actually does say you were darkness away from God, blinded from sight, not able to see between right and wrong, completely confined to doing evil because your heart was dead. But now you are light. And he qualifies it. You're supposed to walk as children of light. But who are you light in? It's not in yourself. It's because of all the stuff of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Ephesians 1 through 3 tells us about that we are united to Jesus. We are in the light of the Lord. That whole phraseology here is to help you understand you are connected. Your identity is now different. You're part of Jesus. You're part of his new multi-ethnic, multi-generational family called the church that is a representation of his work in the world. You're not in darkness anymore. You're not opposed to the things of God anymore. So don't do the things of darkness because you're not darkness. Don't live in the way of darkness because you're light now. So live that way. Live as children of the light. Take the example of God your Father. Take the example of Jesus and live that way. And he says, for the fruit of light is found that is in all that is good and right and true. Now, there's something that happens in verse 10, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 all together because I want to make sure that we, get, we catch it. For one time you were darkness, now you are light. Walk as children of the light because the fruit of light is in what is good and right and true. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that, okay, now the veils are off, figure it out on your own. No, it's, it's trying to discern, it's, trying to, it's being wise about the things that Jesus has commanded for our good and flourishing. Is that we're supposed, to, we're supposed to pursue that stuff. It's not try and figure it out. It's try and discern. It's try to understand. It's understanding what the Bible says. It's understanding that the commands of God are for our good. And when we understand that they're for our good, we figure out that it, this is what's pleasing to God. It's living the way that Jesus lived, and the way that Jesus lived is what pleased the Lord. And then Paul continues with this same kind of imperative command. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So remember that the fruit of light is all the things that are good and right and true in verse 9. He says, don't take any part in them. It's, it's that same kind of phraseology as don't be participants. I'm not writing it very well here, but, but don't be participants or, or don't be partakers or don't uh, do what they do in the unfruitful works of darkness, meaning that the things that darkness does don't bear good fruit. They're not helpful. They don't lead to flourishing. They don't lead to life. But then Paul says something really interesting. He says, don't be like this, but instead you have a new responsibility. Instead, what? Expose it. Expose them. 
Now this idea of exposing it, the word exposes, is the idea of sternly admonishing change when, when an action is discovered. So it, Paul is saying that Christians who are living in the works of darkness, you need to sternly rebuke them. Not, not, not non-Christians. We don't sternly rebuke non-Christians, and we're going to talk about that later. But we're supposed to sternly rebuke. Now, stern doesn't mean unloving. Stern means firm, that we hold our ground, that we call sin, sin. We call a spade a spade. And, but we're not doing it to, to be judgmental. We're not doing it to be holier than thou. We're, we're doing it because we're warning our brothers and sisters that these unfruitful works of darkness, these are evils to our souls. These are evils to our lives. These are evils against our good and our flourishing. Because, and Paul continues in verse 12, it's shameful to even speak of these things that they do in secret. Now, this, this they is probably referring back to the sons of disobedience and what they do in secret. Kind of think about it this way. Somebody who's really kind of cavalier with sexual jokes or, um, or, or very open about their sexual um, experiences or whatever, like think about what they're unashamed of to speak of publicly. How much more are they likely to be doing when they are ashamed and they could be caught in the dark? That's kind of what he's saying. He's, it's shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret because they're so cavalier with the stuff that they do in public. Now remember the context. This is people living in Ephesus who are, who are regular participants in sexual conduct as part of pagan worship. So if, if, that's what's, if that's what's done in public, think about how terrible the things are in secret. But he says, when anything is exposed by the light, he uses that word again, and it's, it's a great word. We're going to talk about it again. It becomes visible. We can see it for what it really is. When Jesus shines light on it, it's exposed. The power is lost. It can't hold us back anymore. And then that thing becomes visible. We, we see it like God sees it. We don't see it in a way that is, um, that is vindictive, or we don't see it in a way that is like, uh, we're better than other people now. No, we're, we're freed from the power of it. We're freed from the power of that unfruitful darkness. And the only way that it becomes visible is when Jesus shines on it, when the light of the gospel is shown on it, when we see that the truth of what God designs for us is for our good and for our flourishing. That's when it becomes visible. And then he says this in verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light, meaning that it can't go back in darkness anymore. Once you understand it, once you've understood that this is a difference, that this is a change that needs to happen, that this is an identity shift, well, you're not going to go back to that same thing. And then Paul closes this little section or kind of transitions the section to the next uh, passage that we're going to talk about next week. It says, Therefore, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he's calling, this is like a repentance moment. But what's interesting about verse 14 is if you look in a physical Bible or maybe even on your electronic Bible if you're using a phone or a tablet or something, a lot of times this passage is kind of indented inside. So it's, it's quoting the Old Testament. And the only place that it's possible to be quoting is Isaiah chapter 60. But in Isaiah 60, it doesn't use, and Christ will shine on you. So most scholars actually think that verse 14 is Paul saying, uh, inserting something that the Christian church would have sung as a hymn. It was part of something that was, okay, you guys, remember? Oh, be awakened. Come back from the dead. Arise in the new life of Jesus. And when you do that, the light of Jesus will shine on you. What, a, what an encouraging thing to remind people of. So that's kind of the, the broad strokes of this passage. But what are we supposed to do? 
Well, the big idea, remember that the big idea is that we are to imitate God and walk as light. We're to imitate God and walk as light. And so to do that, we need to avoid and expose darkness. That's, that's what we're, to, we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to avoid it. We're not supposed to participate. That's much of what this says. And we're supposed to expose it. We're supposed to expose it and call it what it is. And we're supposed to help our brothers and sisters not fall into the same temptation. So here's, here's the first point. Here's what we really want to focus on. Verse 3 and 4 kind of lay out for us that this is, this is the issue. We need to view sex and sexual sin with seriousness, not levity. Now, I know that it's, it's, this same kind of stuff could be applied to pretty much any sin issue. That, well, if, if you're a thief, well, don't continue in thievery. If, if, uh, if you're a liar, don't continue in lies uh, because that's part of darkness. It's not part of light. But Paul is really particular about the sin of sex, the sex, sexual sin issue. And so the first thing is, verse 3 and 4 tells us that we're supposed to view sex and sexual sin with seriousness, not with levity. Paul expresses that sexual immorality, that porneia word of any kind, that impurity, that non-holiness, or that, that self-indulgent, self-gratifying covetousness of sex shouldn't even be named among Christians. The acts of sexual sin are not to be in the lives of Christians. They're not supposed to mark us. But he doesn't stop there. He says, he continues, remember in verse 4, saying that let, don't let any filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking be among you because it's not proper. It's not right. It's not supposed to be part of your life. Instead, be marked by thanksgiving for God's good design for human sexuality. Now, it, it doesn't take much scrolling through TV, Netflix, Disney+, any of those streaming things to find out that sex is kind of the threat of most shows. Whether it's like popular sitcoms or whether it's popular movies or whatever, it's, it is really this glorification of sexual sin. And while we are, as Christians, we're free to watch what we want. Yes, we are. But I think we also need to be wise. And as Paul says, we need to take sin, the, uh, the sexual sins seriously. All of them. Not just one particular one and hang it up like this is the worst of all of them. Paul uses pornea to explain that they're all terrible. They're all outside of God's boundaries and design. And so we're supposed to see it with seriousness, not levity. And so instead of watching shows or, or, or engaging in stuff that is joking about sex or makes light of God's design of sex or glorifies views of sex that are not God's design, looking at jokes that get a laugh instead, instead start to ask yourself, not is it okay to watch these things or is it okay to participate in these things, but is it wise? Is it good for me? Does it help? Does it help me honor God and his design for marriage? Does it help me honor God and his design for human flourishing? Instead of joking about sexuality and making light of sex or light of marriage or anything like that, instead think, is this, is this joke honoring to God? Is it honoring to the people that I'm telling that joke to? Is it helpful? Is it part of God's good design for me and for humanity? Because, as Paul said, the, the consequences are significant. The consequences of those who are engaged in pornea and those who are in anti-holiness, those who are covetous and looking for self-sexual gratification, they don't have inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's, that's scary. I don't want that for anybody. I want everybody to be able to be part of God's kingdom. 
So let's, let's not disqualify ourselves from thinking that we can live this way and be a Christian in the same way that in, in, in an unrepentant, non, non-serious way. No, this is, this is serious stuff. Okay, what about the next thing we need to do? Well, Paul continues in verses 6 to 8. He says, don't be deceived and taken back into darkness. Don't be deceived. Don't buy the lie. Remember I said that? Don't, don't buy it. Don't sell it. And because if you're deceived, you can easily be taken back into darkness. You can be not, not maybe doing the things of darkness, but you can be taken back into that understanding, thinking it's not a big deal, thinking that sexual sin is, is not something that, that God actually really cares about. No, God cares deeply about it because sex is for the recommittal of our marriage vows, as a recommittal of the covenant of marriage. That's what it's designed for, as Keller said. It's really, really important. And so what Paul says is, don't be deceived with empty words. This word, empty words, is, is a redefining issue. Don't let somebody take you asunder. Don't let somebody grab you and manipulate your thinking with a redefinition of God's law. Because of these things, because of people redefining God's law, the wrath of God actually comes on the sons of disobedience. It actually comes on people. People who are trying to propagate that God doesn't care about sexual sin and that we've, we've misunderstood the Bible for 2,000 years while it talks about sexual sins of homosexuality or, or of um, extramarital affairs or of sex before marriage or all those kinds of things, they're, they're lying to you. They're trying to harm you. So let nobody deceive you. Let nobody redefine the terms of God's law. Instead, believe what God has said because the consequences are severe. God's wrath, his hatred for sin is against the people that propagate that kind of lie. Don't buy it. We are supposed to do what God says to do, not because we have to, but because it's good for us. Now, this doesn't mean that a Christian can't ever struggle with sexual sin or we, we, can't, be, uh, we can't be confused, or we, but we need to see that our, our redefining of God's law, the empty words about sin, about crude joking, about filthiness, about foul language, about sexuality, it's not for our good. The devil wants us to utilize it because he knows that it takes us away from God's good will and design. And so Paul says, because of that, because that takes us away from God's good design, don't become partners with them. Don't participate. Don't engage in that kind of activity. Don't think it's meaningless. Don't think it's okay. Don't think it's cavalier. Because he says, remember, you used to be this way. You were darkness. And then one of the best phrases in the New Testament that Paul actually uses a lot in his writings, he says, but now... But now, you were this way, your identity was like this, but now, but now you are light in Jesus. You're different. Your identity has changed. You are not the way that you used to be. See, the Bible is really, really clear about humanity being dead in its sin before the salvation of Jesus comes to us. It's really, really clear. There's there's nothing darker than death. There's nothing more anti-God than death. There's nothing more anti-God than darkness and, and the things of darkness. Death is the complete opposite of God and his character. And that's what the devil wants. He wants you dead. He wants to ruin you. He wants to devour you. 
But God, God is life. God is life-giving. He wants us to experience life to the fullness. Jesus actually clarifies this in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who you have sent. Now, this word know, it's, it's not the issue just of like know intellectually. It's to intimately know, to be aware of, to obey, to be part of, to enjoy unity with. That's what it means to have life. That's what eternal life is, is to be part of God's work and presence and flourishing and good design for the world. Because you were darkness. You were darkness. Your identity is different now. Now you are the light in the Lord. So do that. Walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. Live as children of the light. Because the fruit of light is found in what is good and what is true and what is pure. See, another way to say this is be imitators of God. <laughs> Isn't that the kind of beginning of Ephesians 5? Remember? Therefore, be imitators of God. Walk in love like Jesus walked in love. That's the whole thread, right? That's, that's the context of the passage. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of love. Be imitators of God. Do the things that God does. Another way of saying this, and I think is really great, one, one of the commentaries, uh, writers that I was reading said it this way. Ephesians 5 kind of breaks everything down into understanding that we need to become what we are. So in the process of our new identity, we are more and more becoming that new identity. It's almost kind of like this. So you meet Jesus here, and at the end, you're like Jesus there, and, and in the process... You, you are becoming more and more like him. In the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, you're becoming what you are in position. So in Jesus, you are united to Christ, seen as perfect because of all that God has done. That's the, that's the truth of the gospel. You're free from sin. You're free from death. You're free from hell because of all that Jesus has accomplished. And when God sees the Christian, he sees the perfection of Jesus in place of that Christian sin. And then we, our job is to become what we positionally already are in Christ. That's amazing. So walk differently. Walk the way of Jesus. Be against sin and all its destructive, deadly power in your life and turn towards him more and more. And that's, then he continues, and this is the other command that we get from Paul. Don't participate in darkness, but expose it for the lie that it is. This is, this is what... It's, our call is as Christians, we're supposed to do this for one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to walk alongside of other Christians and, and motivate them, encourage one another to, to, be, to be like Jesus. But when darkness tries to creep in, we need to expose it, call it what it is, call a spade a spade, call sin a sin, not make excuses for it. And then trust that as, as we've engaged in those sins, that Jesus is quick to forgive us. He's, he's the perfect judge who, who can cancel out our sin because the debt has been paid. So be different. Be your new identity. Be light. And just by being light, you're going to expose darkness. Think about this. When you walk into a room and it's really dark, maybe it's the middle of the night, you're, you've been downstairs, you've been watching a movie, you've been reading a book, whatever, you turn the light off and it's dark everywhere. Well, how do you need to see well, you need to turn the light on. And as soon as you turn the light on, the darkness disperses. That same darkness that was present is gone because the light is now there. Christians do this just by being Christians. Did you know that? 
I started to think about it, and here's, here's a good example that I think will be both kind of uh, funny but also very relatable. Uh, many of you know that I, I love to play golf. I love it. And if, it was, if golf was like a scale, and you know, this is kind of like how much I love golf versus how good at golf I am, I, I would actually probably be like more over here. <laughs> I, I would like to think that I'm more over here, but my skill level doesn't actually match uh, my love for the game. But I, I love it. And, and oftentimes before we had kids, uh, even before Caitlin and I were married, I would just go and play by myself. And generally when you play by yourself, you get paired up with other people because they kind of want to fill time, time, um, tea time slots and things. And so you get paired up with these other people and sometimes you get paired up with people that are really quiet. Other times you get paired up with people that are really loud. Sometimes you get paired up with people that are kind of cavalier with their language and whatever. And, that, and that's fine. It's just how people are. It's great. I don't think it's good for them, but it's, it's kind of how they are, right? But inevitably, after a couple holes, you, you start to have some different conversations. You're not just talking about golf. It's not just like, hey, good shot. Uh, something else about the conversation changes. And it always happens, like three or four holes in, may, maybe a little bit later than that, where somebody says, hey, by the way, what do you do? And as soon as I say what I do, the conversation changes. So maybe beforehand, that the guys that I was playing with, maybe they, they miss a putt and they swear, or they hit a bad shot and they're, they're frustrated, they're angry, and they slam their club on the ground. And I, I'm, not, I'm not completely absolved of that stuff either. When you're frustrated, you generally take frustration out. And that's, that's not to excuse it, it's just kind of how we do it. But as soon as I say, oh, actually, I'm a, I'm a pastor at a church, instantaneously, the conversation changes. Now when they hit that bad shot, if they swear, they'll apologize to me as if like that's gonna, that, that changes who I am or that changes who they are. And instead of really understanding the issue, it, what's actually happening is they, they see religious people as, as more morally conscious maybe is a way to say it. More concerned with doing good or being good or whatever they kind of see that as. But it, that's kind of this exposing light thing exposing the darkness. It's, it's exposing it for the lie that it is, that it's not good, it's not helpful, it doesn't honor God, and it doesn't honor people. See, being a Christ follower, being united in Jesus, you automatically, by the very nature of your new identity as light in Christ, you expose darkness. You, maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe it's not on the golf course, but maybe it's in, in the locker room, or maybe it's uh, with a, a group of moms that you go running with, or maybe it's in a, a book club that you're a part of, or whatever. If you don't participate in darkness, if you don't participate in, in the, the unfruitful works of darkness, if you don't partner with it, people start to wonder why. And when they ask you why, then you expose it just by the very nature of being a Christ follower. Because when we shed light onto sin, we bring the truth of God's good and glorious design for human flourishing to the forefront. And it's particularly around sexual sin. Now, people are very uncomfortable with God's view of sexual sin in our world today. They just are. They think it's old-fashioned. They think it's foolish. They think it's, it's unevolved. They think that it's, it's self-depraving. It, all that stuff. But it, it's, it's wrong. It's destructive. It's deadly. And so we need to expose it for what it is. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose it. Expose them. Expose those unfruitful works. This whole issue of, of exposing darkness is, is really important. We're supposed to expose that unfruitful work of darkness, but we're supposed to do that for Christians. 
Remember, Paul is writing the book of Ephesians to a group of Christians. He's writing it to a church. He's not writing it to a Timothy. He's not writing it to a Corey. He's not writing it to a Jane. He's writing it to a whole church of people. He's writing it to a city of new Christians who are living, were living in darkness, but now they're light. Sexual sin was pervasive everywhere, and he's saying, don't be like this. Don't participate. Ex don't excuse it. Call it for what it is. And so the actions need to be, in exposing it, become what you are. Live in your identity. No, no longer live in darkness. No longer live as darkness. No longer participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose it. Call it what it is. Don't make excuses. Be aware of your conduct. Monitor your actions and behaviors. Be quick to repentance when challenged and convicted by others, or even just internally as the Spirit convicts and challenges you. The second thing that's important about walking in this light issue is that you need community to do it. It's actually impossible to live in the light of Jesus apart from the light of Jesus, which makes sense, right? But I'll say it another way. It's impossible to live as the light of Jesus without the people of Jesus. We need each other. Now, while we're all responsible for our own behaviors and our own actions, the language of Ephesians is the letter to a group of people, a community, and the ideas that are presented here are to be lived out individually inside of that community. Giving each other permission to call us out when we're out of step. When we start to fall into darkness, we need to allow for people to call us out, expose that darkness for what it is, expose that lie, and call us back to better behavior, godly behavior. And some of us may think, well, Pastor Corey, we're not supposed to judge Christians. Like, uh, people, everybody's got their own sin stuff. Well, okay, that's fair. Yeah, we do need to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our neighbors, but it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to hold each other accountable. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 5. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Saying, why would I expect a non-Christian to live like a Christian? It's not my job to make non-Christians live like Christians. Instead, is it not those inside the church whom you, the church, are to judge. Now, not in a vicious, malicious, con uh, condemning, self-righteous, I'm holier than you kind of way, but in a careful, considerate, I love you, I want what's best for you kind of way. See, avoiding sin and exposing sin is, is a community participation thing. We need each other to help. And before we think that this is just Paul making one statement, Paul actually makes five additional statements just in his letters in the New Testament about calling each other out on our junk. It's, it's actually kind of the core of what it means to be community, is that when we struggle, we have other people inside of the community that expose darkness for what it is, call it what it is, say that it's not good for us, say that it's not for our flourishing, say that it's not God's good design, expose it in the light of Jesus. Jesus died to replace that with goodness. He replaced that with light in you. Don't participate in that darkness anymore. We need each other to do that. So before you're like, well, we shouldn't judge other Christians, I would say we should lovingly and graciously expose darkness that we see in other believers, calling them to repentance, inviting them to be what they are as light in Christ. So what if you struggle with some of these sexual sins? Stop. Because if you're a Christian, you can. Get help. Ask a pastor, ask a mentor, get a counselor. Invite the exposition, exposing nature of Jesus' work on the cross into that situation. Because as soon as the light of Jesus is on that, 
the devil doesn't have any power anymore. As soon as the light of Jesus infiltrates that sin issue, you start to get help. You start to see it. You don't make excuses for the sins anymore. You take sexual sin with seriousness, not levity. You're not deceived and taken back into darkness. You're not participating in darkness, but you're exposing it with the light of Jesus. You can do that because it's his work in you. Don't make excuses saying that this sexual sin is worse than this sexual sin. No, it's, it's all under the same umbrella of not for your good and flourishing. Don't, don't treat sex as, and sexual sin with levity. Don't do it. But I think most importantly is that you need to understand that there's freedom from this. Maybe you've been listening to me today and you're really struggling. This is an area that is, has either been a thorn in your flesh in the past and it kind of creeps up every once again, or it's it, right now at this moment, both men and women, whether it's porn, whether it's an affair, whether it's sex before marriage, whether it's th- questionable things that you're watching or participating in or joking about, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe this is hitting a nerve. Can I just encourage you with this? Exposing it for the lie that it is, but encourage you with the truth of this statement? Jesus died for that sin. The gospel covers that. You don't have to be trapped in that pattern. You don't have to be trapped in that system. You can find freedom as a child of light, as you walk with him, as you enjoy him, as you trust him. And then you'll see this. You'll be able to imitate God by avoiding darkness, by exposing darkness and walking his light. Let me pray for you. Father, would you do these things in us for those right now who are struggling with this issue in whatever form that it's taking? Would you convict them and would you give them courage and strength to call sin, sin, to call a spade a spade and to ask for help? Would you, by the power of your spirit, work in them to make change by asking for counsel, by, by, by confessing sin, by refusing to go back into the ways of darkness, by seeing that Jesus, when he brings light to a situation, the devil loses his power over that sin issue in our lives. And would you grant us freedom? Would we have people in our church, in our lives, would we individually be free of sexual sin and more marked by intimacy with you, more marked by our our living as imitators of God as we avoid these deadly things and as we expose them for the lie that they are. I ask you to do this in us, through us, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.